Hey y'all, my name is Ludwig Hurtado. This is the Food Futures Podcast from Mold Magazine. If you like food writing that goes beyond your typical recipe writing, then chances are you've read Alicia Kennedy's Substack about food, culture, and politics. And if you haven't, then you should. Alicia Kennedy is a writer from New York based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. She's written for many publications, including Mold Magazine. She's also the author of a forthcoming book on veganism coming out in August 2023. So she comes on the Food Features podcast today to talk about climate change, tourism in Puerto Rico, and the mystery of the tomato season hype machine. Take a listen. Alicia Kennedy, thank you so much for joining the Food Futures podcast. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. I am great today. There was recently a, you know, very serious hurricane in Puerto Rico, as there often is. I'm wondering if you could start by just telling us how that experience was for you. I know you've lived and worked in Puerto Rico for quite some time now. Um, What was that like this year? Well, yes, I've moved here in July of 2019. I'd been coming quite regularly since 2015. And this was my first time experiencing more than a regular storm here, though it it hit hurricane status category, just category one, and mostly hit the southwest of the island, um, places like Cabo Rojo, um, that got hit very hard um, and are, are still in recovery. But I'm here in Old San Juan, which my husband always says he grew up here, that it's a bubble and we are much less affected by things here than people in other places, um, which is very true. You know, our power doesn't go out as much as other people's because we have the seat of government. We are the seat of tourism. Um, We have more access to, you know, we can walk to the supermarket. We have a farmer's market every week. Um, So we're not you know, in any sort of food apartheid situation. Um, So, and also because of these really old colonial buildings, they're they're actually quite strong structures when it comes to sustaining heavy winds and heavy rain. And so, you know, we lost power at 1 p.m. the Sunday that Hurricane Fiona hit the island. And we remember it very well because it was almost precisely at 1 p.m. on the dot, which was quite strange. And then we found out that Luma, which is the American Canadian electricity outfit that controls the power here in Puerto Rico, which was hired by La Junta, which is the fiscal control board operated by the United States, um, put into effect in June of 2016 by President Obama. And so we they just turned it off. They turned the power off without without our power actually going out as a sort of preliminary measure. But for most people, it didn't come back on for, you know, days, maybe weeks in some cases. I have friends who spent, still living in the metropolitan area, spent nine days without power in their houses. We didn't have water for three days because of the electricity situation, which the pump controlling the the electricity controlling the water pump that pumps the water to old san juan had lost electricity so we lost water for a few days that was actually our most um difficult aspect of dealing with the hurricane i suppose other other than the you know constantly worrying the power would go out for for any sort of length of time um and so it was a really hard week of of 
because we weren't hit very hard here, but we still had all these residual effects like losing water. Um, we still had a lot of cleanup to do of debris, um, other people around neighbors whose houses maybe hadn't recovered from Hurricane Maria even, who did feel it a lot harder than we did because water was getting into their houses and that sort of thing. So helping around the neighborhood with, with folks um, to ensure that that they were getting the help they needed. And so, you know, it's it's hard to talk about any one experience of a hurricane in Puerto Rico because everyone, depending on where you are, depending on your affluence, depending on your whether you have a generator or you have a cistern, you're going to have a different experience. Um, and so acknowledging that is always, I think, really important. Uh, also, the geography of the archipelago is vastly different in different places. You know, Old San Juan is like a hill and an island unto itself. Um, then you'll, you're going to have like the central mountainous region, and then you're going to have the desert basically in the south. And so everyone bears the brunt of these things in different ways. Um, we did see in terms of food, a lot of loss um, after the hurricane. We are only now recovering the banana crop. Uh, there hadn't been any local bananas since the hurricane for over well over a month now. Um, and I just saw, you know, uh, I think this week we're getting local bananas again. And, you know, bananas are such a plentiful crop here that you know, you almost don't know what to do with them. Most of the time you have so many bananas, you can only make so much banana bread. Um, and, you know, so when that crop that is like the major, major staple abundant, like can never eat enough of them crop is just wiped out. That's terrifying, of course. Um, and we saw the same thing sort of happen with avocados. Um, my husband was telling me his grandfather, who is is more of a farmer, was saying that when you know a hurricane is coming, when the avocados fall off the trees, like they all kind of just say, all right, we got to go. Because <laughs> um, otherwise, I guess they'll get blown off anyway. Um, and so for like two weeks after the hurricane, everyone is just eating as much avocado as possible. Um, I think my cholesterol went up. I don't know. But like <laughs> we were just constantly eating avocados. Um, and so it's that kind of thing where, you know, these it really kind of drives into focus how, you know, like these things you kind of take for granted living in the tropics, like you always have bananas, you always have plantains, you always have avocados. And then, but like, then it's like, no, you have to eat as much avocado as possible unless, unless you want all of this to rot. And then it's like, you have to go over a month without bananas because the crop got wiped out. And, you know, I know with Hurricane Maria, especially, and with other storms, the plantain crop was really impacted. And, and that's, you know, such a staple of the cuisine. And so it's, it's coming really face to face with how dependent we are on on these things and and how how we need to protect them all the time yeah and and how we thinking about how we can eat in service to their sustainability and I don't just mean sustainability as in climate impact but like their resilience in the face of of um bigger and and worse storms you know how do we eat in a way all the time that encourages the resilience of, of the, the crops that we really need. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was an interesting time, especially because we weren't, we weren't, we were affected, but we weren't as affected as other people here. Yeah. I mean, I want to read something that you wrote in your newsletter, uh, right after the hurricane, you said living in Puerto Rico right now is like practice for the future 
in a world where no real steps are taken to move towards sustainable energy to sustainable anything. It's practice to hurry to get work done while it's possible, to read while there's light, to shower when there's water, to fill every container with some for cleaning and hopefully enough for drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not having the worst of it. You know, that's for someone who is experiencing the best possible scenario in after a storm is that you have to make sure that you have enough water in and we lost water yesterday but it was just because of a construction error um down the street but you know we always have to be prepared for that we always have huge gallons of water filled up so that in case it goes out we can wash our hands wash our faces um you know i am always trying to be prepared with all of my things char my phone my laptop my camera charged all the time because i don't know when the power is going to go out um even though like i said we've been very lucky here and then it's you know we here are are so dependent on luma on this one electric company that is doing such a bad job it's just such a freaking horrifyingly bad job no real efforts taken to move us toward renewables uh, we are 98 percent petroleum energy based in a place where we should be and should have already been moved towards significant solar infrastructure wind infrastructure water power infrastructure you know it's like you know, it is that uh, for me, that's why I say it's practice for the future, because you start to understand much like understanding that we have to eat in a way that keeps our local crops resilient and um, feeding us throughout whatever catastrophe befalls us. We also have to be living in a way that is ready for catastrophe whenever it strikes, you know, um, and I think that that is what a lot of people have to prepare for and aren't ready to prepare for is to live like most of the world, you know, like, I mean, living in the US is, is you know, with a very um, modest income is still living in a much different way than a lot of the planet. Um, and so, you know, making sure you're just aware of things like water, food, that's, that's, um, you know, going to actually feed you and not just like, stuff that you stuff in the freezer um and you know uh be being sure that all of your things are charged and have have power um because you don't know what'll happen making sure all your backup batteries are charged and that sort of thing like i never thought about and this is just privilege obviously but living in new york city like i never thought about making sure my phone was charged all the time like obviously i lived on long island during hurricane sandy so i lost power for four days after that i, I lost power after hurricane irene um you know for a few days and so that that is one thing but like that's not how you live your life you live you know you assume okay a storm is coming and it's kind of like you know when a blizzard was coming when you were a kid and you're like okay i gotta take care of these things make sure i have these things but it's not like you know, a daily thought process, whereas here it is, even if you're kind of living, you know, in, in the most like affluent way possible, um, you're still aware of these issues. And I think that that's just going to become more and more of a problem for more people. Um, and we're seeing it in a lot of different places, like in the Pacific Northwest, we've seen people have, uh, experiencing power outages that are weather related, um, even when the weather isn't like, what you might call extreme um obviously we've seen a lot of things happening in california um but yeah it's just a, a consciousness that i think more people are going to have to have unless we change 
patterns of behavior that exacerbate um, these crises. Yeah, and I want to talk about some of those behaviors. You mentioned that you live in a place where food apartheid is not as bad as other parts of the island. And, you know, much of the island does experience food apartheid in a, in a different way. Um, and I'm curious, you know, from your observation, just living there over the past few years, how, you know, how does tourism play a role in that? Or when people come to the island, do you feel like there's a sort of consciousness that they may be lacking? Well, I do want to kind of clarify that there are certainly places where it's difficult to access maybe as much as much food or as much variety as you might want. I also like for here, it's not, you know, public transportation isn't as much of a thing. So I'm and because I don't have a car, I'm constantly thinking about the dependence upon a car in order to get everything that I need. And so thinking about that, we do have great organizations that are bringing bringing meals of local food to older people as well. Um, and so there are a lot of things being done to help people who are in these situations where their mobility is is strained or that maybe they don't have a car or that sort of thing. Um, there are obviously supermarkets everywhere, um, but uh, at the same time, you know, the variety is very not great. Um, you know, we rely on 80% imported food in the grocery stores from the United States. Um, and for the most part, it is interesting. And, and this is something, there's a great um, great work by Ashante Reese, who's an anthropologist, about um, the ways in which kind of the way we talk about food apartheid is sort of simplified because there is there are all these sharing economies that don't get measured or seen necessarily. And I think that that's a huge part of how people eat here in Puerto Rico, obviously, because we do have there's so much land and there's so much abundance, you know, um, in that way. When you're thinking about, you know, people coming to the island to to take to get a lot from it. Right. And I just wonder you you're there. So you probably take with a different sort of mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to see because, you know, I go to the farmer's market every weekend here in Old San Juan, and it is like an interesting farmer's market um, because it is a lot of prepared food and it's not as and the farmers who come bring as much as they know they can sell. Like they're really good at knowing how much they can sell. And that makes sense. You know, you want to sell out. And this is an I have a friend who's a baker also. And it's like, you don't want to bake more than you can sell because you don't want things to go bad. But there is, especially among the US, the mindset of no, no, you should just like waste stuff. You should just be you should be making as much as you can because you might make an extra dollar. Um, and if something goes to waste, then who cares? But there isn't that mindset here because thing, you know, there's a lot, just put people put more value into what they grow and what they make maybe. Um, and when you go to the farmer's market and you talk to a tourist who is hoping to see like piles of pineapples, like no matter what time of year it is. And like, they're not having the hard realization that pineapples aren't always in season. And, and they're not having the hard realization that farmers who come to the market with just piles of pineapples and guava, like that's not what people who live here need every week to eat. You know, you need like one pineapple and like a pound of guava maybe. Um, but you don't need like 10 pineapples. So why would someone bring, you know, a hundred pineapples to the farmer's market? But like that people butt up against that a lot, which is really interesting. There's a fantastic video that I talk about a lot that was made in the 1950s um, called Fiesta Island that uh, my, that 
a friend and tattoo artist, he he showed it to uh, me and my husband. And it's it's really shows that food and like this tropical wonder was something that was really sold to tourists in the 50s. And I think when they come, they still expect some sort of performance of tropical abundance and they are upset not to be greeted with it. Um, and it's and and to them, that's a failure on the part of of Puerto Rico, you know, of like, oh, you're not showing me like, I don't know, women in giant headdresses of fruit, like cutting up pineapple. I don't know. There's like this just very odd expectation level around food that people come here with. A lot of people don't educate themselves whatsoever on what Puerto Rican food is and leave thinking like, oh, it's all fried food. Um, it's all, you know, plantains and it it's just rice and beans and blah, blah, blah. And like, it is interesting to see how people also respond to like other food being available here. Like the fact that I'll go out for pizza and then someone will be like, who even wants to eat pizza in San Juan? And it's like, well, me, because I live here and like, I'm a person and like literally everyone in the whole world wants to eat pizza. Like there is very few people who don't want to eat pizza sometimes. Um, but there's this idea and, you know, maybe I'll be eating like chips and guacamole and someone will be like, oh, you're not eating tostones. And it's like, am I allowed to eat tortilla chips and guacamole sometimes? Um, so there's like this double edged sword of like people who are super uneducated about what Puerto Rican food is and think that they're coming to eat tacos. And there's other people who like have this weird authenticity kink who are like, how dare you eat pizza? and Mexican food in San Juan like and so because of that like sort of vacation and tropical imaginary like it's hard to for for people to understand Puerto Rico as itself on its own terms because it's like no it's here to serve an idea that I have in my head about what an island is and it's like actually no it's a real place and that that is a, something that people butt their heads up against a lot in in those two different ways of like either it's not um it's to itself or it's not itself enough for them and that's that's a huge problem too of like just diasporas versus people who live in a place too it's like um, because for a lot of the time, food in a diaspora gets kind of solidified for folks. And then the people who live there will continue to make changes and evolve and like travel and, and bring new things back. And then when people come, they're like, ah, no, I didn't think it was like this. And, you know, so there's, there's all these different kind of expectations swirling around in terms of who, what people want. And, and it ends up that like, I don't think that many people are happy or satisfied and it's, you know, it's just because they're they're coming with the wrong mindset um, around what they what what he's actually here. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like Puerto Rico and its economy is sort of in a like stuck in this relation in a complex relationship with tourism and tourists? One hundred percent. I mean, it's I think if <laughs> um, to me, so I'm not an economist. So when I think of like, oh, you know. 13.6%, I think it is, of the GDP of Puerto Rico is tourism. I'm like, oh, that's a small number. But like, if you asked an economist, I think that would be huge. Like, <laughs> you can't take that away. Um, and so it's, it's, it's definitely a challenging relationship. The thing is, is that I don't think 
tourism is necessarily a bad thing. What I, and I'm teaching like a whole class about this at BU next semester for their master's of gastronomy. And they're all, the class is going to come to Puerto Rico. So we're going to kind of like enact the ideas of like, what does it look like to do culinary tourism? Um, but, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to go to a new place and to see new things and, and to experience new foods. It's the way of doing it. And like, it's the way that things are encouraged here to be as facile as possible. You know, you can go stay in a hotel in Condado and like go to Chili's or Applebee's and like go to a casino and like never actually talk to someone who's Puerto Rican who isn't serving you, you know, like and you don't actually have to eat any Puerto Rican food like you could just have this completely constructed experience that is just, I'm on a beach, I'm in a pool, I'm eating, I'm drinking a, a pina colada, but I, you know, I'm not really thinking about what a pina colada is or where it comes from or why it exists. I'm just drinking it. Um, and that's the problem. And like, I think that because of obviously history empire, you know, the Caribbean is this very specific site of people's fantasies of what a vacation is. Whereas like I was just in Quebec City and I was staying at a gorgeous hotel, but like when you go out, not everything is meant to serve you as a tourist, especially like leaving the old city. Like it's it's like, no, this is a place where people live and are going about their daily lives and you're not supposed to stop in the middle of the corner and take pictures here and, and act as though no one is walking anywhere. Um, and like coming from New York, it's like outside of Times Square, like where is a tourist being like served to, you know, like where is, where is their like fantasy of New York being like served to them on a platter? Um, whereas here you can really stay in a bubble where you just never leave that fantasy of what an island vacation is. Um, and here in Old San Juan, it's really interesting because on the weekends, if we go out, if we decide that we're going to go out at like two o'clock in the afternoon, like we shouldn't do that ever actually cuz like the town is just overrun by people like the the these tiny sidewalks are just filled and teeming with people who are like just taking pictures and gawking and like um i don't know like it's just it's it's almost unlivable a lot of the time here because of the tourists um and but they're just trying to have their fantasy experience of the place where you live um and that's, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, old San Juan, you can stay in a hotel, but you're not going to be able to have that pretend Caribbean experience um, to an extent. But yeah, there are places where you can just not, you can just pretend you're anywhere, you're on any island. Um, and that is a really problematic frame of of thought, I think, for, for people to have. Because um, there are places that are meant for you to go do that. I don't I mean I shouldn't even say that like <laughs> like oh I'm sure there's nowhere on the planet where they're happy to like just perform the idea of a tropical vacation for anybody even if there are all these all-inclusive resorts and stuff like that um but this is the world that uh we live in I think I wrote a piece about um tropical cocktails for eater a few years ago which I think was the most I really thought about this, which is, you know, how much we expect the tropical to be an escape always and never a reality. And that's, I think, the problematic thing is, is that people 
can't for so many people to exist in the tropical is to be on vacation and and to not have any responsibility and that's a really challenging that's a really challenging thing for people to grapple with and i understand why it's hard to grapple with because it's what you've been fed your whole life i'm thinking a lot about what you're saying and sort of you know the personal behaviors and the personal responsibility right. that people can take when they are you know interacting with a food system when they're interacting with a place in a community um, and I'm thinking about this statistic that I know we hear all the time. A hundred companies are responsible for 71% of greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Uh, and that is a stat we hear all the time. And I think, you know, I understand the purpose is to say, hey, don't feel so bad about yourself. There's nothing you can do. Companies are really responsible and they should be making more of an effort. Um, but, you know, something I think people really don't know or tend to forget when they cite that stat is that, it's focused only on fossil fuels. Right. 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 And that's what's so that's again like thinking about how Puerto Rico's power system and power grid is 98% petroleum based. That is, you know, something we can't as most individuals unless we have, you know, t upwards of $30,000 to switch our own homes to solar power, we don't really have control over that. We have to deal with what we've are dealt um in terms of um energy sources and then so that's one thing yes there are situations where we don't have the power that we would like to have necessarily but think about how much your life would change if those 100 companies suddenly weren't producing those fossil fuels you know it makes our lives easier the way things function now, especially obviously in the global north and the west, you know, we have an seemingly endless supply of plastic um, to make things convenient. So we never have to think about water or having water on our person. Um, you know, we have energy that we don't think about. We have um, cars that we can drive everywhere. We can call an Uber if we need to. These are, you know, these are petroleum based things that exist in our lives and make it easier. And so if those things suddenly went away, ha your life would have to change. So like the, the 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 weird thing about people using that statistic all the time is that it implies that those 71% of emissions aren't to our benefit or to our comfort or to our existence in any way but they are you know and like i mean and so things would have to change you know we'd have to change how we get places we'd have to change um you know how much we consume in terms of energy in terms of plastic we'd have to think about those things and so the idea that it's just oh it's just 100 corporations don't worry about your behaviors is just saying they won't change, so you don't have to change. So then we'll just barrel toward the the finish line of of Earth, and and that'll be fine. Um, where when mostly it's the global South that emits less, uh, who is having uh, most of experiencing the most detrimental effects of climate change, um, and so that's why that really gets my goat about like personal behavior doesn't mean anything. Of course, it means something because. We are all in individuals comprise the entirety of humanity. And so what we all do collectively and what we all deem acceptable and what we all say is okay, 
obviously has a huge impact on how the world functions. It's interesting because right now, I think those in power policy is still trying to push us so much more toward just a greener capitalism. Um, it's just it's electric cars, more money for that. It's more money for solar panels that you will put on your house that you own, maybe. There is there's still this really individual understanding of what it means for us to change our behaviors, you know, and so it's about how an individual with the means can feel better, of, you know, versus like someone who can't buy a new like, why is it buying a new electric car better than fixing the older car that you have? And then I was seeing something about there was a proposition in California that didn't pass that was going to be about like more more trying to get more electric vehicles on the road and folks were saying this would increase the consumption of of energy in general and that california is doing okay on renewables but that if suddenly everyone had an electric vehicle they would need so much more energy that um they would basically have to use more fossil fuels to keep those electric vehicles on the road like the only actual response i saw an elected official say was is to invest in public transportation and that seems very obvious i think to most of us <laughs> it's like yes invest in public transportation that makes sense and like to get to food like it's the same as oh, just switch your hamburger for an Impossible Burger or a Beyond Burger. Or like eventually maybe we'll have lab meat made in a bioreactor that uses God knows how much energy. Um, and it's like, what about you You don't do that and you just eat less meat. And like, um, and we, end, we figure out how to end factory farming. And what does it look like if we do have sustainable meat in this country? And what, how much would that allow people to eat of, of meat? And then that's what we eat. But like, we can't in the U S obviously it's like, no, that's taking away my freedom. And it's like, what freedom is it to, to just live within the means of, of, of the planet? You know um, what freedom is it to just like, you know, again, like just barrel towards the end. Um, and so, but, you know, people don't like, they like to have their own cars. They like to eat as much meat as they want. And so, of course, people love this statistic. A hundred companies are responsible for 71% of climate uh, carbon emissions because it's like, the, then they don't, they're off the hook. They can eat as many burgers as they want um, instead of like really dealing with the problem. Like we just don't deal with the root source of these issues we're just trying to put a billion green capitalistic band-aids upon it um and it's like no life will have to change and people hate hearing that yeah <laughs> people don't like hearing that there's something they can do right because yes there is there are things that we can do and i think changing our diets as you write often is one of those crucial climate mitigation strategies that we can implement daily right. Yes. Um, what are the ways, aside from eating less meat, are there other ways that you think, you know, people can be thinking about changing their diets or eating differently? Yeah, I mean, I think that, and I always advocate for this. I don't, people are always thinking that I'm like, I want everyone to go vegan. It's like, I'm not vegan. I'm vegetarian. Um, and like, it makes sense to me to eat mostly local cheeses here in Puerto Rico, um, local eggs, et cetera. Like that makes sense to me. Um, but lots of yeah so like my whole thing is eat what makes sense for you in your region you know like if you are in a 
plains region and there are grazing animals and they are being well tended to like of course you know and you want to eat meat which you know that's of course also a personal decision then yes it makes sense to eat meat um it makes sense to here in puerto rico to like eat plantains eat avocado eat coconut like um and you know that that is what makes sense it doesn't make sense to rely on coconut and cashews when you live in new york um and you have tons of like sustainable small dairies there um and with that i will upset people but like you know you can and you, you know you can get butter and milk from local dairy farmers and support them and support their their practices um you know it makes sense to just eat for your location for your ecology for your regional um food systems benefit obviously that's you know it's a privilege because you're going to take a lot of time um to do that you're going to it's going to take probably a little bit more money obviously if we changed subsidies and changed um how we fund different agricultural ventures that that would bring costs down if we decided that we value our regional food systems and, and we value our, our food sovereignty for various regions, um, that would change things. And it, it could bring costs down and make things a lot more accessible for people. That would be great. Um, there are also a whole host of like other socioeconomic things that could change to make better food more accessible for folks and the time to cook it more accessible for folks. Um, but yeah, I, I think that when we say eat, just eat less meat, it, it comes off too simplistic to people. And it is simplistic. And, and But I, I think it's just one easy thought that people can have in their heads a lot of the time to make different choices. Um, you know, if, if you're going out to dinner and there's a veggie burger versus a beef burger and you choose the veggie burger, that's great. Like that's, that's one way of making a better choice in a, in a day. And, and that's great. But if you like these issues and you like thinking about it and you want to eat in a way that that is more sustainable, I think just think regionally rather than I think a lot of the time the problem with thinking about food systems is we think about the global food system and we think about like, how do we feed the eight million people on the planet? Or it's eight billion people um, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's not the question we should be asking. The question should, we should be asking is how do we feed the people in this ecologically similar region how do we feed the people in this other one that looks like this and this other one that looks like this and how do we trade amongst ourselves in the best possible way to make uh anything that is needed in this place that doesn't grow it um accessible to folks and you know just how do we restructure things so that we are not all being fed by the same like five agribusiness companies um and so that we don't have, you know, we shouldn't have a global food system in the way we do right now. We should, you know, like where um, a war in one place makes it so people in another place don't have bread. That's that's absurd. Um, and and that doesn't make any sense. And that doesn't have to be the case if we start to think to stop thinking in this global way where everything has to be the we all because we don't all eat the same you know and we don't all want the same things some things are culturally appropriate here that aren't culturally appropriate here and they're ecologically appropriate here and not ecologically appropriate here and so of course you don't you want people to be able to migrate and get the things that they want but at the same time like we can't just try and force you know this the one strain of rice on the entire world we can't try and force one grain strain of wheat on the entire world like 
and it shouldn't be that way. And it's, it's causes so many problems and it's similar. Yeah. To talking about like, what is food sovereignty look like for, you know, for Puerto Rico and it, it's going to look different. It's not going to look like a hundred percent of the food that is consumed here is grown here because then we wouldn't have bread <laughs> and we wouldn't have a lot of things. We wouldn't have wine. Um, we wouldn't have olives um, and olive oil. Um, but it's about thinking, you know, how can we all in our different regions consume the most locally that we possibly can? And then outside of that, how do we make things, you know, how do we feed ourselves and trade things and make things move around in a way that actually works? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's just about asking thinking about the food system, food systems, plural, and it's about thinking about everything on a smaller scale than, than like, how do we feed 8 billion people? Cause it's like, that's not the question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, w w you're talking about these, you know, varied food regions and I'm thinking a lot about the supermarket and how, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how the supermarket has become this place where no matter where you live, you should be able to get the same thing at every supermarket. And right. it's almost this, there's this American expectation that you should be able to get the same product in any supermarket you go to, no matter where in the world you are. Have you thought a lot about that? Oh yeah. Because I mean, like I, you know, despite myself, I am an American. I do have the desire for certain things that I shouldn't have all the time. Like, you know, what was I, well, okay. So I, my mom is coming next week for Thanksgiving. So I am making dinner and I am using what I can that is local, but at the same time, I want to make mashed potatoes and I want to make cauliflower and I want to make Brussels sprouts and those things I cannot get locally. And so I'm, I'm making choices that I wouldn't otherwise make, you know, the potatoes, sure. I'll buy potatoes, but I, I wouldn't buy cauliflower if it wasn't local. I wouldn't buy like any cruciferous vegetable that wasn't local. Um, but, you know, I have certain things that I want to make and I want to make them the way that, yeah, for a holiday. So, you know, you, I've, I also am not a perfect human being when it comes to food, but like when I go to the supermarket, I, you know, don't expect necessarily to see these things here. And I wouldn't be angry if there weren't Brussels sprouts in the supermarket here. Cause why would there be necessary, you know? Um, but you do see a lot of people who are really upset that supermarkets here don't look like like a Whole Foods in Brooklyn. Um, and that to me is 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 problematic because now you have it's not just this like layer of like people who expect every I'm going to say Pathmark, but they closed all the Pathmarks, <laughs> like um, Stop and Shop, like every Stop and Shop to look exactly the same. But you also have people who are on this other level where it's like, I want a Whole Foods and I want a Trader Joe's and I want like, like so much uniformity, but also like very specific types of uniformity. Um, and that's by, obviously the supermarket is by design. The supermarket serves agribusiness. It serves this fake um, seasonless world that people would like to believe they live in um, where you get tomatoes all year, et cetera, et cetera. I think honestly, tomatoes have done the best job. Like tomatoes don't have a lobby, but people are really, they love tomato season. 
there pe- people are like i don't want a shitty winter tomato i only i'll i will wait for the good tomatoes in august uh, in new york especially like and it's like that's really interesting like i'm really obsessed with how that happened because like <laughs> other than they are really good at that time but it's like you know how did tomatoes suddenly get such good press and become like the thing people can wait for every year yeah but, how um, can we get how can we get other veggies to, exactly, to get that same like, kind of notoriety you know yeah how do we get everything on that level um but yeah it's 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 just interesting because like people we we all do we, i i do too like we take for granted that the supermarket is going to have things that and and like that's a mindset again that i don't necessarily think we have to get out of completely you know i think that there are things that we can probably expect to have all the time um uh, and that's fine but there are lots of things that we shouldn't be expected to have all the time um like I buy onions all the time that are imported even though we have like an onion season here where we can get local onions and they're really good they're so much better than the imported ones but it's like I don't even know how like and I'm a I write recipes like I live for cookbooks I like literally don't know how to get through a week without like onions <laughs> like what would I do what would I eat how would I and like but I do like thinking through those kinds of problems, I suppose. Like, how do we get out of this mindset that, like, these certain flavors are and these certain vegetables and these certain things are, like, what we have all the time and, and what we take for granted? Um, I'm not sure I answered the question. But, yeah, supermarket serves agribusiness, and we are all attached to them because we've 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 been forced to be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on your note on recipes, you know, in the last essay you wrote for Mold Magazine, you write about lifestyle media and food media and the role that it can play in you know, shaping the way that we think about the ways that we eat. And one of the things you wrote about was recipes and how recipes could maybe move in a certain direction, also addressing this sort of false universality of the American supermarket. Tell me more about what you think food media should be doing, especially when it comes to recipes and, and all that. I mean, I think it's just don't pretend that everyone is in New York or California all the time with abundant, you know, money. I think th- things have gotten better around accessibility around that that sort of thing. And like, you know, you're not going to see Bon Appetit give you like an Autolanghi recipe that asks you for like a list of 20 ingredients that you need to go to different stores to get. But at the same time, there is this sense of like this one season that everyone's in all the time and for me obviously since I've lived in Puerto Rico it's really weird to experience because it's and like anyone in the southern hemisphere also is like if they're reading American Bon Appetit and it's like it's their winter but it's New York summer they're gonna be like this experiencing this cognitive dissonance because I I just think that there is so much to be learned and to say when you get rid of that false universality you open yourself up to so much more possibility um you open yourself up to just especially I mean we have the internet now there's no like we're not always gonna you don't always have to put it into the physical magazine itself like where is the stuff about you know the ingredients that are seasonal right now in the midwest or in you know in certain or in the mountainous region like it's things are really really based around the northeast in california in a way that is yeah it's just detrimental to how most people live and cook i think um and i think 
there is a lot of room for for more locality. And I think even people, you might think of like, oh, we're going to alienate readers here if we write about things that are only here. And it's like, I don't think that's true. I think people who are interested in food are interested in food. And you're going to be more interested in saying, huh, so that's different from how I'm going to eat right now. Um, and that sort of thing. Like we've sort of moved toward this diversity of cuisines um, of the world and getting away from things that are just European. And that's fantastic. But there's also these other levels of diversity that we can aren't seeing, which is geographic diversity. Um, and, you know, or even like dietary restriction diversity, like there's lots of vegan and vegetarian and gluten-free recipes maybe, but also like you know, folks who have um, health health concerns around their their eating, like we're not seeing that in major food magazines. Like, why are we alienating those people from major food magazines? There were a couple of essays recently about how um, it's kind of ableist to tell people not to use pre-chopped garlic. And they didn't appear in food magazines, though. And it's like, why isn't this appearing in a food magazine? Like, why aren't we getting these stories Um in food magazines like where are recipe writers like my even myself mixing the mark on being more um uh legible to more people on diff what many different scales so it's like you have like all these levels of diverse like geographic diversity ability diversity um even linguistic di like i'm i'm constantly saying we need to translate food food writing um you know, there's all this other stuff that we're sort of missing when we pretend that New York is the center of the universe. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think that there's so much, there's so much more to say and there's so much, um, there's so much to write about that actually takes all this stuff into account that's really interesting and it gives you more to write about and it gives you more people that are possible to, to bring you ideas. And so, um, yeah, I would love to see more of that. Um, but I don't know if I, I, I hope I am. I'm hopeful. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, people like you are are definitely leading that charge. And here's hoping, you know, folks at Mold Magazine as well, or, you know, they're on on the front lines of that. Um, but yeah, I guess here's hoping that there's more of that sort of media and, you know, people reading it and people writing it and people engaging in discourse, even just amongst their friends. Right. Talking about hey, do you know that this food is not actually grown around here around this time of the year? And maybe we can switch this recipe or this ingredient out with something that's actually more sustainable to where we're living and where we're eating it. Yep. Alicia Kennedy, thank you so much for, uh, for joining the podcast. Really appreciate you. Um, and we'll all be looking forward to more of your writing. Thank you so much.